Serpents and spiders, tail of a rat. Call in the spirits wherever they're at. There was blood on the sand. And welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 221 for the week of May 8th, 2011. This week, I want to share an interview and conversation with someone whose work many of us have enjoyed for years. He is Jeff Curdy, author of more than 25 books on Disney, including Since the World Began, The Legends of Disney Imagineering, and many of the Art of books as well. He's also the writer-director of numerous documentaries, including The Boys, The Story of the Sherman Brothers, and many Walt Disney Treasures DVDs. His very roles at Disney include time at Imagineering and other special projects, and he's also the creative director of the Walt Disney Family Museum, So we have lots to cover about his life and times at Disney, the people he's worked with, including Herb Ryman, Dave Smith, Marty Sklar, Randy Bright, Exitensio, and much more. Whether you're a fan of the parks, books, Imagineering, films, or Walt himself, sit down with us as we discuss many of our shared passions. Stay tuned for some announcements and more information before playing your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. It's always been a goal of mine and focus of my show books, CDs, magazine, and everything I do to help not only enhance your appreciation for the Disney parks, but your entire Disney experience. And along the way, I've also been extremely fortunate to speak with people who have been critical in the creation of those experiences and share those conversations with you in a variety of formats. And in a very small way, I hope that I'm also helping to preserve their legacy by sharing their personal stories in their own words. And in doing so, I have been inspired by and learned from and admired people who do it better than anyone else. And my next guest is someone whose work literally did just that. He is the author of more than 25 books, a writer, director of award-winning documentaries, a respected public speaker, host, and panel moderator. He is a very well-regarded expert on pop culture and the entertainment industry, and he is a man who's also an amazing storyteller in a variety of mediums. 
He is a man that I've wanted to meet since I picked up his first book in 1996. I finally had the pleasure of doing so just last year. I am an admirer, a fan, and am helping to eventually put his kids through college one book at a time. So I am pleased to welcome author, writer, director, producer, the list goes on and on, Mr. Jeff Curdy. Jeff, welcome to the show. I cannot possibly live up to that introduction, so I'll just say thanks and <laughs> see you later. Holy smoke. Well, listen, you know, I, I before we get started, you know, I met you yeah. I, I met you last year and I didn't tell you this, but I honestly you very much had a great influence on me and to a certain degree are a large part of why I'm doing what I'm doing and, and why we're talking today because one of the very first and undoubtedly one of my favorite books on Disney World and the one that really got me so interested in the history and details was Since the World Began. Uh, I do have two copies, one that I read and one that I save. I've got hard copy, a hard uh, card cover book and the, the soft cover book. And, you know, I, I, it's, uh, it is very true. And, and I was not kidding when I said that you were a person I wanted to meet when I started reading that book low so many years ago. Well, you know, it's one of the things that's been the most satisfying to me is because I grew up in a sort of a culture of Disney. I was a big Disney fan. I loved so much and continue to love so much of what constitutes Disney. And to me, there's nothing more satisfying than sort of uh, getting getting the like-minded, the kindred spirits to sort of join on that trip and get involved and excited and interested in it. And to be quite honest, I couldn't tell you why. But it's just really, really a fun, interesting, to me, fascinating subject area that's so broad and has so much detail and so much scope. And I always just kind of love it when... Well, now that I'm getting on in years, shall we say, as I am pushing the big 5-0 this year, I, uh, I recently worked on the Disney Dream with a young guy who said, gee, Jeff, when I was a kid, I got since the world began, and it really started my whole Disney career. Now, on the one hand, I wanted to punch him in the face and say, yes, when you were a kid, and I'm you know, pushing my walker around. Uh, on the other hand, it's exactly sort of why I've done what I do. Not only because it's really fun for me and really interesting to me, but there's nothing quite as fun as sort of sharing. I always say it's like a church in a, in a really good and positive way. We've, we've formed this sort of giant congregation of people who all believe in sort of this one word, this one story. We believe in this one thing so deeply, and we sing the, the, the hymns and we read the books and we share that whole experience in such a sort of joyous way. And it's just been a really, really satisfying uh, experience for me to, number one, have, have, keep finding out that I've influenced so many people to pursue Disney as either an avocation or a career path, or simply to know that uh, there's so many of us and to share just the, the, the out-and-out fun and interest in that, in that entire sort of cultural phenomenon. And, yeah, that's one thing that the Internet certainly did over the past number of years is, is make us all realize that, that 
you know, we are not crazy, or maybe we are, but you are not alone. We are not alone in our in our love of Disney, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about. And clearly, you know, your passion for it comes through. You're you're truly a fan and enthusiast first. I mean, you've done so many different things that we're going to try and go through. Um, believe me, I could talk about some of those individual parts for hours on end. But you know, you you alluded to the fact. You were a Disney fan as a child. Tell me about sort of that first exposure to Disney, I assume, probably through TV or movies. Well, pardon me. Well, like most kids, you sort of are, you can't escape sort of the iconic childhood Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, those kinds of images, Winnie the Pooh, I guess, that kind of stuff. But the real... The switch turner for me, I had a conversation with John Hench, a lengthy conversation at one point about the fact that we were both sort of curious as to what made people into Disney fans. Because we are sort of a breed apart. We are a certain type of person. I mean, it's, a, it's interesting because we're a, a varied group of personalities and beliefs and, and so on. And we all come together in this sort of one cultural phenomenon of being Disney fans. And Hench finally sort of threw up his arms and said, I've just come to a conclusion that maybe there's something genetic that just flips the switch in people at some point. And they go, wow, that's where I want to be. That's what I'm interested in. That's really cool. For me, that was Mary Poppins. I was maybe five years old. I went to the Mount Baker Theater in Bellingham, Washington. I sat absolutely riveted for two hours and 20 minutes. And I'm told that the first thing I said after the house lights came up is, can we see it again? And then after that, anything that said Disney on it was my thing. So I would, you know, this was, this was way back in the late 60s and early 70s for all you punk kids out there, um, long before you were born. Uh, but I would go, you know, I'd go to the I'd go to the drugstore and I'd get Walt Disney's Comics and Stories and Walt Disney's Comics Digests and... I remember the Golf Magazine, wonderful old Disney magazine that they did at Golf gas stations in the mm-hmm. '60s. I had an uncle who would go buy those for me because he was, you know, had a golf card. So every time he'd fill up his gas tank, he'd get, you know, I think there were only half a dozen issues. But anything that had, I'd go to the library and get the books that Disney movies were based on, and read the source books, and it was, it was like a fanaticism. At one point, my mother said, oh, he's going through a Disney phase. <laughs> and that was, you know, 40, 45 years ago. So it's a long phase to go through. <laughs> yeah. But, and... I mean, it just, it sort of grew from there. I would, yeah, I, I always joke and, well, half joke. I know a whole lot about Benjamin Disraeli because his encyclopedia entry was right there after Walt <laughs> Disney. So, you know, um, I mean, it's. In the internet age, it's difficult, I think, to comprehend that I kind of went into the the um, the sort of uh, enclosed research room at my um, elementary school library, and there were a dozen different encyclopedia. So I would go to the World Book, and I would read their entry on Walt Disney or Disneyland, and then I'd go to the Britannica, and I'd read their entry on Walt Disney or Disneyland or whatever. I mean, it was it was pretty you know, sort of a deep-seated mental issue <laughs> throughout my childhood. I think that ultimately 
I mean, the great thing to me about Disney overall is for a kid or for a young adult or even for a grown-up, it can just take you in so many different directions. I still remember going to, you know, researching about pirates because I was so fascinated by Pirates of the Caribbean or when the Haunted Mansion opened. And yes, I was a kid when the Haunted Mansion opened, so I'm very old. Um, reading the sort of haunted house books, Alfred Hitchcock's, you know, anthology book of haunted houses and stuff like that. Cause I was just kind of into ghosts cause it was a Disney thing. Um, so it just sort of continued from there and I continued to make attachments with what I was doing. You know, if I had to write a report for school, I would inevitably find some Disney thing to plug into or some angle that had, you know, if I was doing a report on, I remember still one report I had to do, I think in sixth grade about, but they were called state reports. Every kid had to choose a state and write a report about. I chose California, of course. I think half the report wound up being about Disneyland. <laughs> you know, so it was, it, and it just sort of continued. Um, and the great thing is, even now, so many years later, there are still things to to find out, to interpret, to understand, to research. It's sort of something that I think to a lot of people seems trivial. And a lot of people, I had somebody say, gosh, you kind of wasted your life on this whole thing. <laughs> and I thought that was a pretty you know, blunt thing to say. Um, but yeah, I've spent a lot of time researching and studying and thinking about it and about Walt, and about the studio, and about, you know, then you, you sort of branch out and learn contextually about the time periods that things took place in, so that, you know, as a, as a researcher and as a scholar, you have a greater understanding of what was going on adjacent to and around, and it, it becomes sort of a much bigger historical pageant as you learn more and more about all of that stuff. Right, it's not just about an animated film. It's really, uh, it's really much more of an academic thing. And listen, if that's a waste of a life, I think a lot of people, especially after they hear what you have done, uh, wish that they could waste their life in the exact same way. Uh, after the after the interview's over, I'll explain to the quarter of my audience that doesn't even know what an encyclopedia is, <laughs> what those giant <laughs> books used to be. Uh, because yeah, things have uh, things have changed completely, and I think it's. It's a wonderful irony that you were going out to research those books. And again, this is not, I'm not saying this because you're here, but you know, you've written the one that is the must have for any Disney fans library. And since the world began is just, is one of those um, that, that has to be there, you know, especially if you are our theme park fan. Yeah. And, and this year I was kind of disappointed because they passed on doing a 40th anniversary revised and updated edition, which I really pitched and I, I went to Disney publishing and they went in turn to attractions merchandise and they just, that wasn't what they wanted to do, unfortunately, but I really wanted to go and give that a huge overhaul because as much as, as I love it and as, as wonderful as I think it is, it's really dated. Sure. And of course, so much has happened in the intervening 15 years since I wrote that book. Um, Boy, I'd really love to have a, a crack at a do-over on that one. <laughs> you know, you talked about a 40th anniversary book, and I, and I sort of got out of interviewer mode and into enthusiast mode because I was, you know, 
that's what we'd love to see. And I think a lot of people are, are going to be very disappointed to hear that it was something that was considered and never came to be because I know that we've been looking at the 40th anniversary coming up for like two years, waiting yeah, to see what was going to happen uh, and what was going to change. And, and again, we, we're so hungry for content. We're so hungry for history. And that's the beauty of the internet and, and podcasting and blogging is that everybody can share their own personal memories or things that they find. Uh, it's changed the way we're able to get some of that content. Well, the thing that's great too, is I'm finding the people that I connect with and that I really enjoy are very much involved in a sharing discussion. And I find that there are people that I sort of disconnect with who are people who want to be right. <laughs> so we get into dialogues about Disney history or events or sort of these philosophical discussions. And there's sort of a percentage of, of the people you engage in dialogue with on the internet who simply have to be right. <laughs> and they're not really interested in the alternative information you might have, the experience you might have, or the other idea that they might want to consider. They just want to be right and move on. Right. <laughs> and being authoritative is not about being right. Um, being authoritative is about being informed and being able to engage in, in a kind of a, an ongoing, that, that's how you have life in all of this Disney history and stuff is to, to be able to continue to evolve the conversation about what it's all about. Cause I think in the end, that's why people are, are so hungry for content and hungry for knowledge is they continue to ask the questions in their own minds or straight out loud. Why? Why does this appeal to me? Why does it work? Why do millions of people keep coming here all the time? Why do people come here four, six, eight, twenty times a year? You know? So it, it just it's great, I think, to tell you the truth, for fans, the internet's been a great boon in terms of moving out there and got the access to so much content and a lot of it really good and really unusual and stuff that would not work in any kind of mainstream um, delivery mode. You couldn't really do a book about a lot of the stuff that you can find in discussions on blogs and, and in websites and internet postings and discussion groups and stuff. You could never coalesce them into a linear product. You almost need those sort of random access qualities that the internet brings to give these things a place to live. Yeah, and it's funny you talked about that, that why. Why do millions of people go back? Because I will tell you personally, that is the question that prompted me to start writing a book. And again, too, going back to 2003, there was not, you know, it was a book that I wanted to read as much as I wanted to write. And things have, uh, you're right, evolved so much more now with with the but so many different me, mediums. Uh, tell me Jeff, and the how you go to from consume the kid well that's fascinated by all things Disney into, Mom, this, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. Does it happen sort of accidentally or was this the path that Jeff had set out for himself? think a lot of it was happy accident. Um, a lot of it was a lot of times, the more you try to push your agenda or push your goal, 
the farther away you move from it and the more you sort of alienate people. And the other thing is the time-honored question of what do you want to be when you grow up is not answerable. Because sort of by the time you get there, you're already a grown-up. And life, if you've let it, has taken you where you're supposed to be and not necessarily where you wanted to be. Because if I was where I wanted to be when I was 21 years old, I'd be doing theatrical press and publicity in New York City. That's where I thought I wanted to be when I was 20, 21 years old. What happened was... Richard Sherman says there's no such thing as an accident or, or just plain good luck. Everything is an opportunity meeting preparation or ability. And I've had a lot of, and, and part of the trick is recognizing the opportunity when it walks in front of you and reaching out and grabbing it. So, you know, big Disney fan, always wanted to be into Disney, moved to L.A. in 1983, and it was during um, that era when if you wanted to get into to the mailroom at Disney, you had to have a college degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from a not-so-well-to-do background in the Pacific Northwest. I didn't go to college. I went to art school for a couple of semesters long enough to find out that I was really a terrible artist and that pursuing a career at Disney didn't necessarily mean I had to be an artist. And only in retrospect, understanding that understanding about art was in many cases more important than being able to make it to create art. So I came to L.A., I, I made my application, I had no college degree, and so you sort of immediately got booted out the door. Um, I had a fairly limited work experience, but I had worked in film exhibition in Seattle, Washington, at a time when Seattle was sort of a sexy movie town. They were always bringing test screenings and test runs and, and previews and all kinds of stuff, and testing them out in Seattle. They were doing all kinds of of sort of innovative stuff in movie presentation up here. I happened to work at a theater in Seattle that was one of the only remaining theaters that showed 70 millimeter and six track stereo at a time when Star Wars and Close Encounters were making a huge boom back to giant theatrical presentations with stereophonic sound and wide, wide gauge film. So we had had sort of an unprecedented second run of Close Encounters that went for like 18 weeks. I mean, it was huge. And it caught everyone's attention in Hollywood that there was this second-run engagement that was selling out. And one of the um, places that that sort of got a hold of this theater was Disney, and they wanted to try um, reissuing Sleeping Beauty Mm. in Technorama 70 and six-track stereo. So I wound up being at this theater where the only engagement in 70 millimeters since 1959, a sleeping beauty was going to be shown. And Disney sort of gave us carte blanche to do whatever we wanted. They said, you can have anything in the film library because the, you know, it's only 75 minutes long. And the manager of the theater and I said, Grand Canyon. And there was sort of silence from the Buena Vista rep on the other end who said, no, you see, I said, you can have anything from our library as a short or a featurette. He couldn't understand why we would want Grand Canyon. Well, Grand Canyon is what Sleeping Beauty was released with. That's 
So um, although they didn't quite understand, it created sort of a huge hit. They sent up Eric Larson, one of Walt's nine old men, some young pup from the film distribution area named Dick Cook, who was just sort of starting out at uh, Disney, and another young 25-year-old publicity guy named Howard Green. So for all of your real sort of Disnoid um, fan fiends out there, they'll recognize all of those names rather immediately. Um, For those who don't, Dick Cook actually wound up being chairman of the Walt Disney Studio many years later. And Howard Green is still the senior vice president of publicity and the Disney fans' best friend at uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios. So those were three pretty nifty people to meet and know when I was you know, 17 years old. So I stayed in touch with them and dropped a note every now and then. And when I went down to California, I visited Eric Larson at the studio in the old animation building. And he introduced me to some guy who was running their archives named Dave Smith. Mm. So I think I was 17 or 18 years old. And here's Eric introducing me to Dave Smith. Dave and I become, you know, once again, the immediate kindred spirits. And, you know, it's stuff like that sort of goes on from there. As time went by, Eisner came in and there was a lot less, first of all, there was a huge and enormous growth and the, the need for smart, warm bodies at Disney in the mid eighties was sort of huge. <laughs> and the other thing was they were much less uh, rigorous about uh, a college degree on your job application. So uh, I wound up, you know, very long story. I wound up working at the Olympics and the Olympics led to a job at California to the arts and the president's office. The president of Cal arts wound up being named the first president of what was then called Euro Disneyland. Now Disneyland Paris. And I actually went in sort of the side door to Disney Mm. as the executive assistant to the president of Disneyland Paris, who then helped sort of manipulate me over into a role at Walt Disney Imagineering. And that's sort of the start of my Disney career. It's, uh, you know, like I said, I knew the story was going to be fascinating. Who would have thought it would have been because you worked at a movie theater um, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest that lets you into Walt Disney Imagineering. What do you do over at WDI? I started out actually as sort of a coordinator role, you know, and all of you coordinators listening know that that's sort of a, I don't know, a glorified assistant secretarial kind of, I don't know what, low man on the totem pole. But it was in the graphics area of the Disneyland Paris project. And what I did was I simply um, took care of documentation and scheduling and stuff for a whole group of graphic designers who were doing all the graphics and signage for the Magic Kingdom, for the Disneyland Paris park. What it meant on another level is I was there at Walt Disney Imagineering during the waning days of people like I would walk down the hall and I would talk to Claude Coates or Jack Furges or I would see Mark Davis and Harper Goff would come in and out, Bill Justice quite a bit. They put me down my first day of work in a cubicle in this horrible industrial park building that used to be an auto parts company, I think. And here I'm in this cubicle, and I realized 
that they've put me next to this funny old man who turns out to be Herb Ryman. Wow. <laughs> so my first job at Disney, uh, at Imagineering, on my first day, and essentially my bunkmate, the guy I talk to across the cubicle every day, is Herb Ryman. <laughs> I am not I the only one who's it. smiling saying, I wish I was Jeff Curdy. Well, and you know, you know, how did a guy like me luck out like that? Um, you know, and I've had people say since then, well, at least you knew who he was. Yeah, yeah I guess right. so. Because the other great thing about Herbie is he would talk about anything. He was a great raconteur, but he was always interested in everything. So uh, you'd hear, you'd hear, you know, you'd get your coffee in the morning and you'd hear, good morning, good morning, Jeff. Sit down. You'd hear the LA Times rustling and you'd have Herbie sort of call across you read this article about so-and-so in this morning's paper? Yeah, yeah, I read that on the bus this morning. And then he would talk about, and, you know, you'd find out all of this stuff about Herbie. The places he'd been, the things he'd done, the projects he'd worked on, all the stuff that I didn't know would sort of start coming out. But then, you know, like I said, once again, these guys were already sort of legends to me anyway. So if I walked down the hall and I saw Ken Anderson or John Hench, I had this annoying tendency to, bu to buttonhole them and sort of talk their ear off. Um, in a, I'm sure what could be considered a spooky and stalkerish way, but I mean, that's how I got to be friends with Dick and Bob Sherman. I actually ran into them completely by accident in the parking lot at the studio in 1985 or 86. And I said, hey, you guys are the Sherman brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess my sort of goofy statement of the obvious really sort of caught their attention. And they looked at each other and said, well, by God, you know what? We are. You know, I think Bob said, yeah, yeah. The last time I checked, we actually were. And I had just watched Tom Sawyer, of all things, not even really a Disney thing. But I had watched it really for the first time as an adult. And I was fascinated. The timing, once again, was just everything. I was fascinated by their screenplay and how beautifully structured it was, how well-written it was, how they had taken a very anecdotal book and created an emotional through line and had taken characters and developed them. And so we talked about it. And they basically started to sort of let me in on a lot of their process in developing Tom Sawyer was simply based on what they had learned by working with Don DeGrotti and Bill Walsh later on developing Mary Poppins, mm -hmm. which is the same thing, an anecdotal book of disconnected stories with very interesting characters, but it had no emotional through line. It had no beginning, middle, and end. Um, we must have stood for half an hour in the parking lot of the studio. A few weeks later, I was over at Imagineering and ran into them again, coming into the... So, you know, a lot of times you just go, gosh... I don't believe in coincidence anymore. Mm. And we wound up having another lengthy conversation and it sort of led to a very long and, and very satisfying, the relationship, as I said to, to Dick and Bob at one point, there just comes a point where a fan turns into a friend and then friend becomes family after a while. And that's kind of the way I felt about those guys. Um, so, you know, like I said, I feel like I've had a lot of lucky breaks, uh, but being at Imagineering at the time that I was, 
when it was transitioning from sort of the last of the old guard guys and the and the into sort of a new era it was just an amazing time to be there and to be able to meet. I actually pulled out my copy of Disneyland Inside Story a little while ago by Randy Bright, and I opened it up, and I had absolutely no idea. But I opened it up, and the first thing that fell out was a Disneyland ticket book. I stick stuff in books all the time. So, mm. you know, if you guys... Any of you guys listening, um, if I die and you come to my estate sale, buy books because there's well, probably a lot of junk in them. Here is an autograph in my inside story. This I carried around Imagineering in 1987. It's autographed by Marty and Randy Bright. Herb Ryman signed everything in the book that he wow. that he that he painted. He put a little note on it of sort of what it is and why I should be looking at it. Um, it's signed by. Um, Bill Evans, Ken Anderson, Harper Goff. Um, I'm just looking for this and going, I don't even remember getting all of these guys to sign this book. But this was sort of the world at Walt Disney Imagineering at the time that I got to be there. So it was really just enormously good. There's Exitensio, Exitensio <laughs> Class of 38, he wrote. John Hench. Um, Claude Coates. So, I no longer I no longer want every book written by Jeff Curdy. I want every book owned by Jeff Curdy. That's what I want my library consistent. <laughs> some of them are pretty wild, to tell you the truth. I I uh, I got a copy of Art of Princess and the Frog that all the filmmakers signed for me. Wow. I mean, it just it totally blew me away. You know. Um, Ron Clements and John Musker and Peter Delvecco, the producer, and all the animators and all these people I'd interviewed signed this book with very, really, most of them just really nice inscriptions and little things and stuff. So, I mean, it's just, you get into these cool, I think part of it has to do with appreciating, too, kind of where you are and what's going on, because a lot of times this stuff can be overwhelming or you mm. miss it. It's like that Ferris Bueller quote right. about life goes by pretty fast. Um, so that was the Imagineering world that I came into, and that's actually where I started writing. I started writing for the corporate communications area at Imagineering, and I moved over into communications from you know my little sort of graphics apprenticeship. And I didn't really know I could write, to be honest. But every job I had had when I was in Seattle entailed you know doubling in brass and being able to do 43 different things. Um, and a lot of what I did in jobs I had in Seattle was doing things like writing press releases. And I, of course, had been in journalism class in my high school and yearbook staff in my high school, so I had done some of that kind of writing. But I'd been a reader my whole life. So I started writing press releases in the communications office, and my boss at the time, Betsy Richmond, came in and said, I kind of brought you in here because I like the way you sort of lead tours and can talk to groups and stuff, but I didn't know you could write. Because I'd done this draft press release, I'll never forget it. It was about the DNA helix tower at the Wonders of Life, hmm. when it, right before it opened. It was about. It was released at the time they put up the structure of that DNA tower at the Wonders of Life pavilion. So I wrote a press release. So apparently everybody liked it. She started giving me more to write, and I started writing for the old Disney News Magazine um, whenever they needed sort of a 
Imagineering thing done. So I wound up writing for Disney News Magazine, and, you know, I kind of went from there. Everything just sort of snowballed. I mean, luckily, people kept asking, and I kept being able to do it. Well, it, it's, you know, it's not just being lucky of being in the right place at the right time. Obviously, you, you had the passion and the talent uh, behind it, and that's obviously what, what the people around you recognized. At what point do you go from press releases to, Jeff, we need you to write a book? Or does it come say, hey, you know, I have an idea for a book. This is what I want to do. This is what I can write. I had gotten to the point where there are two critical things, I think, that relate to that notion of passion. One is you cannot let your passion overtake your entire identity. And it's, it's funny because I had two things. One is you can love Disney all you want. Don't confuse Disney with the company. Mm -hmm. They're not the same thing. The company is a very specific business entity and Disney is a whole other beast. And what happens is people confuse the two and they say, oh, I hate Disney. When what they mean is, I hate something the company has done or is doing. They don't hate Disney. I don't think anybody really hates Disney. But sometimes they get frustrated or fed up or angry about something that's being done in the name of Disney by the company. Because that's the way it's built. The other thing is, I, I had a, after I was Imagineering, I moved over to corporate, and I had a great job in corporate Disney. It was called Corporate Synergy and Special Projects. And I got to interact and relate with and exchange ideas with all these Disney business units all around the country, all around the world, and to do special projects. It was a, it was a wild thing. But what happened was I slowly turned into a giant, nasty corporate head. And my life was consumed by my job. My identity was defined by my labor grade and my pay scale and my, you know, arc of ascent through the company. And I had a friend who said, you're becoming really unpleasant and you need a hobby. And I realized, yeah, you know, he's right. And I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, geez, you know, more than anybody I know about useless information about old movies and stuff and movie musicals, why don't you write a book? So I wound up constructing a thing called the Great Movie Musical Trivia Book. And I was actually in New York for the opening of Beauty and the Beast at the Palace Theater working as the corporate liaison for the opening team. And I sold my book. I had a literary agent who represented it, and he said, you're in New York right now, I want you to go over and talk to this publisher. And the publisher bought the book. So it was sort of a sideline thing. The Disney thing had actually driven me to a point where I was so horrible <laughs> that friends encouraged me to get a hobby, which I used to write a book, which I then sold. It was really bizarre. The other big thing I learned and the big lesson that I would pass on, I had a secretary one day, I was all bent out of shape about something at work, you know, I was always feeding this drama and emotion into everything, and I had a wonderful um, department assistant, department coordinator, and she looked up at me one day and she said, you know what, Jeff, 
you can love this company all you want. It's not going to love you back. And I just, <laughs> it was like Klieg lights going on. It was like, you know, being in the interrogation room, all the lights came on all of a sudden. And I went, holy smokes, you're absolutely right. This is a completely one-sided relationship because this company is incapable of loving me back. That's not what it's for. So if I want to express my adoration for this, for this organization, what I need to do is express it for the culture and not for the business institution. And that sort of was a change in my primary tack of how I thought about Disney. I went to my boss after I sold my book and I came to her and I said, you know, the book project that I was talking to you about? And she said, yeah, have you got any interest in it? And I said, actually, I sold it. And she was absolutely floored. She said, that is so great. And I said, yeah, but you know what? I want to do more here at Disney and I want to do other things. And I feel a little bit like I'm stalled out in this terrific job that I absolutely love, but what's the next step? Unfortunately, because of sort of certain departmental structural things, there was no next step. I would have to leave that department and that job in order to move anywhere else. And she at the time suggested to me that I quit. She said, why don't you leave? Because there's two things, she said. Sometimes with this company, you're much more attractive if you can walk out the door. People think that's really, really cool. Ooh, Jeff Curdy, he left. You know, he doesn't work here anymore. He must be really fancy-pantsy, powerful, or, you know, sexy, or whatever the heck he is. She said, and the other thing is, if you let people know, and this was part of the corporate synergy job, allowed me to do all kinds of different things. I could write, and I could supervise videos, and I could do this and do that. She said, if you let people know that you're available as a consultant, I bet you get to do a lot more things. And then the final thing she said, which was sort of the safety net nail in the coffin, was, and if you hate it or you're no good at it or it's not working out, come back and we'll find you another job in the company. And I mean, so I I left. I had a client at the time back when the Disney Channel was a premium channel. I was doing their quarterly on-air promotions. So back in the olden days when you paid extra for the Disney Channel and it was, you know, uh, sort of a, a whole different animal, they would do these quarterly sales pitches where Shelley Duvall or Patrick Duffy or Corbin Burnson or Robbie Benson or somebody would sort of sell you on the benefits of the Disney Channel. And they needed someone to do that who kind of understood culture of the company, not just sales pitches. So I had that client and I said, yeah, okay, I can do that and I can quit. And, you know, I've got that one client that will pay the basic bills. About two months after that, I got a call from Wendy Lefcon at the Disney Publishing Group, and she said, I've been with three people today who've told me that you're the guy to write the book I need done. Hmm. And I said, well, what book do you need done? And she said, I want to do a book for the 25th anniversary of Walt Disney World. I said, oh, I'd love to do that. That would be really great. And skip, 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 that's since the world began. Once that was done, we had such a good time, and Wendy and I have, have immediately, you know, we had known each other through Corporate Synergy, but we're, we've been friends now for, you know, that amount of time, however many years that is, 15 years, 
16 years, <clears throat> whatever it is, um, she called up and said, I have this dumb little book that I need done, and I'm wondering if you're interested. Well, you know what? You don't, <laughs> you don't tell a Disney fan writer that you're bringing them some <laughs> dumb little book. Yes, I'll do, any, I'll, do, I'll do a really stupid book if you'd like. Um, but it was a little Disney miniature edition called The Art of the Little Mermaid. And she actually said that Peter Schneider and Tom Schumacher at Feature Animation, who I actually knew from the Olympics, so everything's sort of interconnected here. I had worked with Peter and Tom on the Olympic Arts Festival back in 84. They had suggested that I do it. That book was pleasing to everybody, and the next thing that came along was Peter and Tom think that you are the guy to write the art of Mulan. <laughs> So I wound up doing The Art of Mulan, and that was, once again, a happy experience. Everybody felt pleased with things, and the next call I got was, okay, everybody really likes Art of Mulan, and um, we've been talking, because we know you've been, I've been working with John Lasseter and that group at Pixar on the Laserdisc edition of Toy Story. I was writing all of the text and creating the sort of story flows and stuff. And they said, Art of a Bug's Life. And my name came together with it. And I was thinking I was a known commodity and I had some track record. Then I went on and did that. So it's sort of one thing sort of flows into another. You became, the, you became the art think, of guy. You became the art of go Well, and unfortunately, too, at a point when the art of books sort of died was the time <laughs> that I started. Because, you know, they had had... Art of the Lion King, Art of Pocahontas, Art of the Hunchback. Then they sort of veered off and did the Art of Hercules in a different size, and it wasn't wholly successful as a book. And the sales started to sort of fall off. Then I did the Art of Mulan, but it was sort of too late. You know, right. it, was, it was sort of on the way out for those oversized art books. But I'm still very proud of that book. And it's, it's actually still... I think one of my very favorite of my own books. Just I'm literally, of, I'm literally holding it in my hand as we speak. Well, see, there you go. It's like psychic, man. <laughs> oh, I, but, I, you know, I, it just it, it went on and on from there, though. And you know what? I continued, you know, as the years go by, to occasionally do, you know, other favorites like the art of Disneyland, the art of Walt Disney World, the art of Princess and the Frog, the art of um, Tangled. You know, they're just. They're, the great thing about going to art school and totally sucking as an artist <laughs> is that you wind up with a combination of utter admiration and sheer envy of people who make art. But you also speak their language. Right. You also, if you're smart, have gained an understanding of sort of fundamentals of how the art works so that you can actually have dialogues with them that sort of engage and interest and feed off of both your admiration and your communication. And you're able to sort of take that back to an audience in writing and carry with it sort of your own admiration and interest in the subject. So it, you know, everything sort of all works out. Well, I want to I want to bounce around just a little bit because I want to I do want to go back and talk about since the world began just a little bit. But as long as we're talking about the art of animation books, I want to just touch on those for a second because uh, they do sort of make a, a resurgence. You come back and you do 
Princess and the Frog and Tangled, and I want to ask specific questions about that. But the, the process of putting a book together like this, uh, when I picked it up and I went through it for the first time, I, I was just amazed at not just the beauty of the art inside, but the content. Uh, clearly, you had this access to material and, and animators and producers and directors. How does the, the research process for one of these art of books goes, you know, at what point in the movie do you start the process and are you given sort of this carte blanche access to the people who are working on it? I pretty much just make it all up. <laughs> hey, hey, look, if you say it with conviction, people will buy it. So that's fine. You know, it's <laughs> like the old saying of it's all about being sincere and what you can fake that. <laughs> um, what happens typically is well, you know what? It depends on the film itself. With Mulan, for instance, I can't exactly remember the stage of production we were in, except I did see the whole picture up with a great deal of animation, but a lot of a lot of story reel stuff still. Um, but I went they went they made that in Florida, so I went down to the studio in Florida for like a week or ten days. I got set up in an office and then working with the production, uh, for, with the producer, Pam Coates, and some of the production people, we sort of put together um, an interview slate for me of, of who the proper authoritative voices would be for the proper areas, um, all the sort of the, the lead animators for all the key characters, character designers, production designers, technical people, and we sort of did like the doctor's office interview, the doctor will see you now and they would walk in and, and, uh, sit down and I had my recorder there and they would, we would just talk, um, carried the same sort of, of, and, and, you know, basically then you sort of get taken around the production every day that you're there in the, in between the interviews, you look at story reels, you look at, um, you know, typically they'll arrange a screening of the film at that moment so that you have some uh, lucid idea of what you're actually talking about in terms of the plot and the story structure and how the characters work. Um, and then, I mean, the best thing is then you let the production team make the selection of the art that they want. Because what happens on a production team is they're all telling the same story anyway. On a cohesive production, you find that the values, the background, the anecdotes, the things that are important about the film, you hear from everybody. So they essentially establish and tell their own story, and it's my job just to write it down. Then the selection of art comes from basically them making choices that refer to that story which is basically the culture of their production. And it's been the same form on Bugs Life, on Princess and the Frog, on uh, Tangled as well. You get into the production and you know the filmmaker's story to the degree that you can present yourself sort of as a, as a, a representative. I always say, you know, I've got really beautiful complimentary notes from the filmmakers on the books I've done, Nathan, um, Nathan Greeno and Byron Howard on, on uh, Tangled, sent really sweet notes, and it's like, guys, all I did was write down what he said. Then I sort of put it in a, a story order that made sense. Um, 
that's kind of what you have to do. I think that, that these kind of books sort of fail when all of a sudden that omniscient narrator turns into a personality. Mm-hmm. And I've always tried to avoid in my books ever using the word I. Because my books aren't about me, and they're not about my ego. They're not about my um, talent or lack of talent. My books are typically about somebody else's work. And I, I note that there are certain sort of film historians and stuff who tend to inject themselves into the narrative, and I never do that. I'm really scrupulous about avoiding it. Well, and so I think- that's kind of how it works. Well, and, and these books specifically, you know, you, you very much get across the message and the tone of the film. And when I looked at books like Princess and the Frog and Tangled, I imagined for you being an animation fan that they presented great opportunity. Number one, because Princess and the Frog was that return of the hand-drawn animation. And Tangled, I thought because I just felt the visuals in the film were so stunning and the locations were so beautiful. It, it very much had that old-style Disney feel to it. Uh, did you get the sense when you were putting that book together that it was very much inf- influenced more so by the classic Disney films? It, and absolutely, and this is sort of part of the whole conversation that we have as fans and documentarians of Disney culture. The reason for that really is, <clears throat> pardon me, because... The reason for that is because Byron and Nathan are Disney fans. And they operate with that sort of dual responsibility that I think we all come to the table with, which is, gee, what a great opportunity to create a Disney thing. I hope I don't screw it up. But alternatively, you come with a great deal of insight and knowledge about what it is you're doing and how it relates to a larger cultural background. And then somewhere right in the middle that balances those two things and makes both of them not terrifying is you have an enormous passion for it. You have a love of it in your heart. And I think that really comes through in Tangled, to tell you the truth. I think the fact that they, they so wanted to do something that was really Disney in all the ways that we love about things being Disney. And I just, I think they succeeded unbelievably. And in many cases, sort of against the odds, given that they were handed sort of a, a big stinky sandwich and said, here, you know, make a banquet out of this. Cause I mean, it had been through no, you know, no insult intended to the previous teams that had been on the film, but it had been in development so long and there were so many aspects to it and so many different, uh, um, passive development it, it was just they had to have the the intelligence and the fortitude and the courage to be honest to go and make their own statement about what the story was going to be and what the film was going to be and yet be respectful to all of the people who had come before and had developed and worked on Rapunzel over so many years and turn it into their own film um and i just i think they did a phenomenal job I agree. And I mean, I think here's, it... here's the other great thing. When you sit down and you start to talk to an artist or an animator, particularly a Disney animator, and you talk to them in their own language, and you show to them that you know what you're talking about, they relax and open up. Sure. Because they feel like, ah, there's a friend in the room. It's 
it's it's made those accesses so much easier because they look and say, ah, one of us, one of us. Um, and you're that makes walk, it right. You're not just walking in and saying, okay, tell me about Mulan. Tell me about whatever you you're able to communicate with them on their level. And when you have a, a film like Princess and the Frog, you know, I've known Ron and John for a lot of years, you know, through a lot of different projects at Disney. And when you sit with their art directors, for instance, and you understand the vernaculars that they're approaching, that they're, or that, you know, they're using shape language that's derived from the lessons they learned from looking at Bambi. Or you can talk about, you know, some of the great people in the history of animation when you talk about, you know, how Claude Coates could create a set that was evocative without distracting. It just being versed in that whole vernacular winds up elevating the whole discussion. Um, and I think then there's a richness that comes through to the reader that you might not get if there wasn't somebody who was a vaguely psychotic Disney nerd, you know, behind the keyboard. <laughs> right. Well, you can't, you cannot fake that both the knowledge and the interest in the subject matter, because that would clearly come through. And I have to imagine that, that was probably just one of the many challenges that you had. I want to just quickly go back to Since the World Began because uh -huh. this is a, a very different type of book. And really, you know, there was no book like this before, one that covered the history of the park and the photos. Yeah, there was souvenir guides, and we all have the old black book that was shaped like the D, completely dog-eared from the early days. Oh, but, heck yeah, I've still got that. Yeah, again, I have two copies, one that I read and one that I keep on the shelf. Yeah. But you now have to go through what I can imagine is an extensive amount of research and not just talk about the events, but again, those the people that made the swamp into, you know, the vacation kingdom of the world. What uh, what kind of challenges and what was that process like with, okay, okay, Jeff, go write the history of Walt Disney World. You're on your own. You know, what, what happened? Probably. How do you... Horribly intimidating. <laughs> Number one, it's not a—it's not anything you're going to say no to. Sure, you're going to go. Gosh, I'm either going to crash and burn at this, or this is going to be great. You know, um, and my book is truly going to suck, or it's going to be good. Um, what I did first of all was, of course, I did a huge archival sort of reconnaissance, and um, my good friend, the recently retired uh, archives manager uh, Robert Tiemann, I still remember this. He pulled boxes and folders and all kinds of stuff, interviews. So I was able to really sort of pour over that stuff. Then I have this um, incredibly great friend named Tim O'Day, who I think you know, sure. and a lot of your listeners probably know that um, big, lovable redhead from Orange <laughs> County who's been around Disney pretty much since I think they started pulling trees up in Anaheim for the park. Um, Tim actually assembled a huge box of materials for me once I told him what I was doing. Because, of course, he, like you, like me, we all have our own sort of personal stash of stuff. Tim pulled me essentially a file box full of promotional literature, brochures, newspaper clippings. I mean, he had tons of stuff. Um, then it was, you know, this is in the days before the interwebs and the internets. So I actually had to go to these crazy places like the Academy Library, Los Angeles Public Library, Central Library, um, several different collections around Los Angeles, and actually look at these silly things called books or files or clipping files and stuff like that. But I, I think I had 12 weeks 
from the time I was hired to do that book until I had to turn the manuscript in. So it was uncomfortably fast for something that was so big in terms of subject. Now, Wendy and I talked early on, um, Wendy Lefcon, my editor on the book, and I said, we have two ways we could do this. And I said, given the schedule, I'm a little more comfortable with one way than the other, but I don't know how you feel about it. And she said, what's that? I said, I don't think I have time to do interviews. She said, oh, I see your point. I said, because number one, I'm going to have to interview, gosh, 70 people at, at a minimum. I'm going to have to go to Florida. And I think given the time and the schedule and stuff, maybe we want to examine this book from a different angle and make it sort of not that way. So we wound up going from sort of this secondary source structure to a large degree. And a lot of the quotes were taken from other sources or from interview transcripts, you know, that kind of stuff. Because I literally didn't have time to assemble and do all the interviews that would be required to do it. And then, of course, when you start to get down to brass tacks and look at the page count and the word count, there's only so much you're going to be able to put on the page anyway. So that was kind of how that came about. And, uh, you know, ultimately I, it's like so many of the things that I do, I put in stuff because it's what I would buy. Mm -hmm. You know, I write a book because I want to write a book that I would be proud to go out and plunk down, you know, 40 bucks for. Um, you know, it's, it's once again, it's that sort of drive and passion and that desire to share the word, so to speak. Um, you know, sing the hymn and, and, uh, share the good news and all that stuff. And you get to continue to do that. Uh, they obviously keep going to the well because you're very good at what you do and you do a number of other theme park books. And again, we're sort of just touching on some of the titles that you've written. You've done Walt Disney World, then now and forever, a very different sort of look back at Walt Disney World. This, this was sort of more like a scrapbook. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I really hated that book. A while ago. And, it's, and it's, it's, so, it's so weird because I, it was an incredibly sort of disjointed, difficult book to put together. I was working with Bruce Gordon as a book designer. We were not seeing eye to eye on a lot of the design elements of the book. Things kept getting changed and moved around and taken out. And, oh, it was just, it was sort of a a giant chore on a lot of levels. So it was finally done and delivered. I got the book, and to tell you the truth, I thought it was ugly. And I threw it on the shelf, and I didn't look at it again. I finally took it out a couple of weeks ago. Maybe three or four weeks ago, I took it out, and I started leafing through it. And about 40 minutes later, I looked up. And I went, oh, gee, I guess this book isn't half bad. So, you know, a lot of it, it has to do for me with how I feel about having done the project. And sometimes I have this sort of glowing technicolor fantasy memory of <laughs> of how wonderful a project was. And it influences how I feel about a book that maybe isn't all that great. On the other hand, I can tend to be very harsh and critical about books that are actually pretty good. Well, I don't know if this is going to make you feel better 
or worse, but I no longer have that book on my shelf. I need to get another copy because my five-year-old son has stolen it, and that is what sits next to his bed that he reads every single night. So um, so you're a great deal like me in the fact that you've already started to completely damage your children's minds at a very early age. And oh, absolutely. I, I, truly, I absolutely. appreciate that. They've been brainwashed since birth, and uh, yes, they, they, they all have their own uh, portions of the Jeff Curdy Library. <laughs> oh, there you go. Bed, so. <laughs> um, one of the other books I wanted to touch on, theme park-related, was Walt Disney's Legends of Imagineering, the genesis of the Disney theme park. Again, he worked with Bruce Gordon on this. Uh, this, I have to assume, did resonate with you personally because you got to talk to a lot of these Imagineers that you knew. Where's the inspiration come from for this? Is it one? Is it an idea that's presented to you or one that you felt inspired and wanted to write? Yes. <laughs> it was an idea that was presented to me in very vague terms, which is, as I recall, it was Wendy saying something akin to, we're talking about doing something that's kind of like John Kane Maker's Nine Old Men, but is about the guys who did the parks mm. or did Disneyland, that core group. And I said, that's a really good idea. And that was really the core of the inspiration was Kane Maker's uh, Walt Disney's Nine Old Men book. And... I sat down and started to make a list and I came back to Wendy within a few, I think within a few hours, if not a few days and said, you know, I'm already up to 14 (laughs) and I'm really sort of hemming and hawing on a lot of them because, you know, one of the things that I get complained about is, is I get complaints about is Mary Blair's not in there. Well, Mary Blair's not in there because John had just been doing his, he, it wasn't done yet, but he was about to do his giant Mary Blair project. And what's the point of duplicating that information? So I said, you know, I'll, I'll put some markers, some road signs to, to John Canemaker's book so that people can go look for the Mary Blair book. But I sat down and I said, we're not going to be able to do the nine old men because there's so many more than nine here. She said, well, how many do you think there are? I said, well, it depends on how far we go with the story. I've already got sort of 12, but that doesn't bring in guys who really may not be creative, but were really important, like Dick Irvine and Bill Cottrell, people who are sort of less showy or well-remembered, like Marvin Davis and Bill Martin. I said, ultimately, you get down to the case of people you sort of want to have in there who may not exactly qualify, but, you know, does Exitensio deserve to be celebrated in there? Yeah, he kind of does. Um, so she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go talk to Marty and, and, and see what Marty Sklar thinks. Because, you know, Marty had been ultimately the big boss at Imagineering when I was there. And everything that I wrote when I worked at Imagineering went under Marty's scathing red pen. And so I went and I sat down and talked to Marty and we sort of sussed it out. We wound up doing this again for a Disneyland book that came out last summer, which is we sort of just sat and spitballed who's important, who's not. Or not even that. It's not who's important and who's not, because to a large degree, of course, they're all important or they wouldn't be there. But if we're going to do this sort of core group, 
who do we have to really have in here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wound up being, I don't remember how many, 20, 20 some people or something. But the thing you ultimately wind up wanting to do is not let the generation pass, not let it pass so that these people are not remembered right. in a proper context. And how would wound up with Imagineering Legends and the genesis of the Disney theme park? Um, what I really wanted to do and what I proposed at the time, and of course the publishing world has gone kablooey since then, and you know, the whole, I wanted to do a follow-up book of Walt Disney Studio Legends and Walt Disney's Disneyland Legends to focus on those core people who were under contract at the studio during Walt's time and after Bill Walsh, Bill Anderson, um, you know, sort of department heads uh, uh, of different uh, studio uh, capacities in live action, in animation, and so on. And I wanted to do the Disneyland one of, you know, sort of the the <clears throat> Joe Fowler, Joe Potter, Dick Nunes, Jack Lindquist kind of folks. But, you know, I don't think those will ever come to be because, you know, the publishing world has, has gone so nutty and it's so hard to you know, it's so hard to sell a, a sort of niche market book like this. Yeah. Although I think Imagineering Legends has done fairly well. It had a very small print run, but I think it's consistently now over time continues. I mean, I still see it at, at the parks and stuff when I go there and, you know, so. Yeah, I think it's one that uh, it needs to be on a Disney enthusiast shelf because, again, it's about sort of capturing uh the stories for new generations of people that are unfortunately not going to ever be able to hear from some of these first tier uh, Imagineers that unfortunately are passing. And when I first looked at the book, you know, I said, God, you know, what an opportunity for you to be able to speak with so many legends and as a, an enthusiast first, it had to be a great experience. Well, And then I'm thinking, well, you knew a lot of these guys, so it now has to be a challenge because you see them and they say, well, hey, Jeff, what about me? How come I don't make <laughs> I don't make the cut? Uh, you know, I guess choosing and sort of paring it down had to be tough, and I guess it's good that you can just eventually... It was, it was very tough. And like I said, I've been criticized a lot for the choices that we made, but, you know, they had to be done. There are, um, you know, it's it's... When you do something essentially as a work for hire, which is what <clears throat> these wind up being, no matter whether I cultivate an idea and bring it to them and they buy it, it's still a work for hire because they have to own the copyright on it. Um, um, you have to get into a collaborative mindset. There's no prima donna allowed because you ultimately are the servant of an ultimate master, and that is sort of the Disney thing. Now, I've been accused that um, it makes my... I had one person criticize me as as that I write syrupy nonsense, which I think is sort of an overstatement. Um, Some of what I write is nonsense. Some of it may be syrupy. But I don't think it's ever the two at the same time. But I don't think I've ever felt compelled to sort of hew to a company line. Mm. And to a large degree, to be honest, if I write anything that is objectionable or questionable on a company level, uh, typically it's sussed out between the editors and the attorneys. Um, I wrote some stuff in The Art of Mulan 
that they obviously felt was not appropriate for a Disney book. And it had to do with the fact that the big hunky general, uh, or, or what was he, lieutenant, um, essentially falls in love with one of his soldiers, right. who happens to be a girl in disguise, but there's something disquieting about this in terms of being in a Disney animated feature. <laughs> This was not something they particularly wanted pointed out in an official Disney art book. So, editorially, those few sentences hit the floor. I'm fine with that. Because, you know, that's kind of the way, the, the way things are. But, to a large degree, even on Since the World Began, I, there's stuff in, the, in Since the World Began that I never thought would make it past editorial. But I thought, ah, what the heck. Let somebody else cut it out. <laughs> So there's a, a degree of truth-telling, and a lot of course has, has to do with simply how you position telling the truth. If you tell the truth with no rancor and no ill intent, you tend to get it in print. If you don't really have an ax to grind other than sort of stating an observation, typically it'll, it'll get into print. Right. Um, it's when people try to sort of create giant... Um, you know, create a giant point out of a minor incident or try to, to sort of shake the finger or scold or, you know, it's just, there's too much editorializing in that. Um, I sort of ascribe to them the Mark Twain uh, saying of always tell the truth because then you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so I kind of I live by that because... If I'm not, you know, inflicting my own emotion or, or my own point of view so much on all of this stuff, I figure the author inserts his own point of view enough in how they present the material, in what order it's presented, the context in which it's presented. I don't need to go and, and make a big deal about my opinion. Right. So, anyway. Well, and one of the questions that popped up to me, actually there were, there were two questions that popped up about this title specifically um, because you were uh, an enthusiast first from, from a kid, you know, was there anybody, whether it's on this book or, or any of the, of the work that you've done in sort of the, uh, in the Disney realm, has there been anyone that you were most excited to meet or, you know, you met so many incredible people. Was there sort of that, that, Oh wow person for you. Gosh. Other than, other than Tim O'Day. Tim O'Day, well, just because, you know, he's a big redheaded galoot. <laughs> but beyond that, you know what? It's interesting because so many of the meetings I've had came about sort of organically. I remember two in particular, of course, being a Mary Poppins nut. One, of course, was I had a dear friend at the studio, have a dear friend at the studio, who was in charge of the old Voice of Disney, the Michael Eisner introduction mm -hmm. things. And I was shooting a video interview of Michael for the Beauty and the Beast um, Platinum Edition for the documentary. So he was shooting a Voice of Disney thing on stage two at a certain time on a Saturday or Sunday. And he said, okay, you can interview Michael in between when he's shooting his different lead-ins. So he calls me and says, okay, come up. Coming to the stage, I think, you know, my interview is at like 2 o'clock. He said, I want you on the stage, though, at noon. And I said, okay, why? He said, well, because I want you to get your crew set up, 
and I want them to get used to, and Michael to get used to you being around. So you're not some sort of sudden ta-da introduction of a stranger. I want him to get comfortable with just having you in his eye line and seeing that you're around. I said, okay, that makes sense. Well, what he really was doing was Michael Eisner was shooting the wraparounds and intros for a network broadcast of Mary Poppins, and he was on the stage with Julie Andrews. And my friend Jonathan wanted me to meet Julie Andrews. <laughs> so I walked into the stage, and Jonathan's like, here, you know, do the setup. I had no idea what was going on. He says, here, I want you to meet somebody, and he takes me over, and there is Julie Andrews. And... I don't really remember much. <laughs> the other one was actually recently, a year ago, January, January 2010, um, actually shortly before that, it would have been, I guess, November, for the opening of the Mary Poppins stage musical in uh, Los Angeles, they actually wanted to invite Dick Van Dyke. So long story short, I wound up being sort of Disney theatricals Dick Van Dyke guy. And wound up working with his manager and with Dick to get him to the theater and to, you know, have him walk the red carpet and to sort of take care of him and his family and so on. It ultimately wound up with Dick pitching an idea that he'd love to be in the show. And he said it almost as a joke. He said, I just wanted to be up there. And I nudged the publicity guy and said, you should. He's like, what do you mean? I said, he should go up and, and do Mr. Dawes Sr. in the bank scene. Just throw him in one night and it wound up being actually a charity event for one of Dick's close to his heart charities, the midnight mission in downtown LA. Um, Disney theatrical gave him a block of tickets, which he then raffled off. He took the raffle winners to dinner prior to the show. And then during the second act, he came on stage, um, as Mr. Dawes. Wow. And it was a one-time only, one-of-a-kind thing. We even did those things in the program for that night, you know, where you have a flip of paper that says, tonight, the role of so-and-so. <laughs> well, what we did was we took the spelling, the mixed-up spelling from the last part of the last title of Mary Poppins, where it says Nekved Keed or whatever, and then the letters rearranged to say Dick Van Dyke. Mm. So we put that on a little slip of paper in the program. Tonight, the role of Mr. Dawes the Elder will be played by Nekvad Keed. Well, of course, all the Disney people in the audience who were fans read that and went, what? Because <laughs> they knew it was sort of this goofy, um, was it an anagram when something's all messed up like that? They knew what that meant, and they were like, what does that mean? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? So, I mean, that was amazing. That was knock your socks off, Disney nerd punch in the face coolest thing that ever could happen kind of deal. So, I mean, you know, the thing to, the thing I guess for me is I, I've never stopped having gratitude for how lucky I've been. But when you're five years old and you see a movie like Mary Poppins that influences your life and then to ultimately be able to meet and know and work with the people who were in that movie that so influenced your young life, you, you just got to get down on one knee and say, thank you, whoever, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know who you are, but somehow I believe in you, you know? Because <laughs> um, well, it's, it's just way too cool. And, you know, and look, these things, you know, not to 
over-dramatize it, but they have profound impacts on us. And, and Mary Poppins is a great example. And, you know, you talked about Dick and Bob Sherman, this, this sort of happenstance meeting with them in a parking lot. You know, they wrote, I mean, they were very much instrumental, pardon the pun, in in Mary Poppins. You you get a friendship with them. Um, you also, you write Walt's time with them. You work on The Boys. You know, we, we haven't even talked about your film work as yet. Uh, you get to work on the book with them. And really a, a very important documentary about the story that nobody had heard before until you were able to sort of help, you know, bring that to light uh, in the book and the film, obviously put together um, by their kids as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, you look around on, I mean, I just, I look around on some days and go, huh? How did that goofy five-year-old kid get from here to there. And I guess a lot of it is not only just, you know, have the love, have the passion, pursue the knowledge, but also kind of remember to be grateful. Remember that it's not about you. You know, it's interesting because you talk about these sort of profound lessons. And the other thing I think that mistake that people make when they get into situations like me, do you ever hear of the Ron Howard movie called The Paper? You don't see it very much. But it was about, it was Michael Keaton and about a big city newspaper. And Glenn Close played this sort of nasty city editor. And the, the, the conceit of her role was that she was always going out somewhere from the city room. She was putting on a gown and going to a cocktail reception, going to a signing, going to a gallery opening, all that stuff. And then there's this grizzled old city, uh, grizzled old managing editor, um, Robert Duvall plays. And he tells this lengthy anecdote, much like the boring one I'm telling now. Um, but he says, the punchline is, we travel with them. We're not one of them. And I think that's part of what helps keep me sane and keeps me on track with what I'm doing with my Disney stuff is, I didn't make these movies. And I'm not... Uh, a Sherman Brothers talent or a Disney feature animation talent, I document what they do and I translate it for other people to gain enlightenment from. Um, I travel with them, but I'm not one of them. And I think that's helped me sort of maintain a clear headspace where I've had colleagues and other people over the years who wind up frustrated and crash and burn and leave Disney and stuff because they simply can't wrap their arms around that it's sort of not their fame, that you're reflecting back somebody else's. Does any of that make sense? Well, it does, and I, but I don't think you should, you know, minute, look, the Sherman brothers are telling somebody else's story through their music they aren't. They weren't able to tell their own story. They needed you to tell their story for them in in book and film. So it's equally as important. So for for us to understand, um, and look, the uh, the the Waltz time is one of my favorite books because I learned so much more not about just the music but about the people who were behind it. So I think the storytelling that you do is different than what they do, but equally important nonetheless. Well, I appreciate that. Um... And, you know, uh, well, 
I won't argue with you, but <laughs> I don't, I don't really feel that. I don't really feel that way. I mean, you know, I have sort of, to me, I have sort of a, a, a small and quiet life in comparison to some of the sort of giant people that I've been able to, to be sort of be around, you know, and I have many fond memories and I have lots of anecdotes and lots of eyewitness, uh, tales that I could tell. And, uh, you know, maybe someday I'll write a, a memoir of some kind because it's so funny while you're in it, a lot of the time you don't really realize what you're in, mm. but you know, now I talk to people about, about, you know, stuff that I was doing back in the eighties when they were children. And, you know, I don't, I don't realize that my being in there and being a part of the creative team on, on, uh, Disneyland Paris, it was a big deal. I was on a big Disney project. It was, it's something that continues to resonate. And, you know, telling the story of watching Frank Armitage painting his concept painting of the Sleeping Beauty Castle and stuff, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. I didn't know it. I didn't know it then. I thought it was cool. I thought, gee, I have a cool job but I never really gave it the sort of cultural importance that I've kind of learned in retrospect. Maybe it only happens in retrospect, you know, you don't realize it as you're doing it, but yeah. Well, and, and how do you, and, and you know, you've worked on literally countless, uh, films and DVDs, you know, the Walt Disney treasures. You did so many of the, uh, DVD DVD versions of classic films. You did also a lot of, uh, documentary films, including one on Mary Poppins and Peter Pan and, and individuals like Bill Farmer and Frank and Ollie. How do you move from the, or is it sort of one of those seamless transitions from writing books to working in the film aspect of the industry? I think if you're in the proper mindset, it has a lot to do with I realize that what I do, no matter what I'm doing, is I'm telling a story. And it doesn't really matter what the medium is. Um, so whether I'm writing it or whether I'm... And, you know, I guess moving into doing video documentary and, and film documentary and stuff was fairly easy. Once again, it was easy for me to write because I was a reader. Mm-hmm. So I had sort of an innate understanding of how things should sound how they should be written and i think in the same way i was a not so cuckoo documentary file you know i loved film documentaries and documentaries about the making of movies and stuff like that so moving into that field was a fairly quick transition and then once again it's another one of those jobs where if you just go and do people notice I had a colleague in that particular area in doing DVD supplement and documentaries who said, I used to think nature abhors a vacuum, but you abhor a vacuum. Because I would just sort of do anything. Oh, yeah, somebody needs to take this tape over to blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, that's part of an experience. You go do it and then get it done, and it's part of what helps the production. So I never sort of sat in a little ivory tower and said, I am the producer, I am the director, I am the writer, or whatever I was doing. You just go and make the thing. And each experience you have, whether it's somebody has to go shoot 
the still photographs on a rostrum camera. This is the olden days before we just did digital scans and did the moves inside the computer. But, you know, every little aspect of it helps your learning curve about what it is that you're doing and how you can do it better. And, you know, of course, then all of that documenting and all that writing and all that stuff led to, I think, led in many ways directly to being asked to, to do the Walt Disney Family Museum, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, the pinnacle project of a Disney nerd's life. I mean, I think all of those things sort of helped lead in that direction where I was uniquely qualified right. to do a whole bunch of stuff that they wanted and needed done in order to create a museum about Walt Disney. And you had many roles in this. You were creative director, you were content consultant, you were media producer, you know, and there's so much about the family museum that in, intrigues me. Um, you know, first and foremost, people were saying, they said, well, why are you going to put a, a museum not near Disneyland? Well, because it's not about Disneyland. It's about Walt, the person, the family man, the son, the father, the husband, and not Walt Disney, the brand name. And that probably <coughs> presented great opportunity for you, great challenges for you, too, in order to how to present it and how to gather those artifacts, which I have to assume probably came from the family for the most part. Lots came from the family. A lot came from the company. We had a really great collaborative relationship with the Walt Disney Company. And you're absolutely right. Why is it in San Francisco? Because Ron and Diane Miller live in the Napa Valley and in San Francisco. And they already had all of their stuff there. And they had started to put the foundation, the Walt Disney Family Foundation, together. And its offices were there. And they looked at places. They looked at actually a couple of interesting places. One was a space between the Los Angeles Zoo and the Autry Center for Western Heritage. Great big space sort of on the edge of Griffith Park by the 5 Freeway. Um, they didn't want to be that close to the studio. They did not want to encourage a perception that it was a Disney attraction. Mm -hmm. um, they looked all over the place. Uh, there was some talk at one point about Union Station in Kansas City which had done a great big redevelopment, adaptive reuse uh, thing. And they kind of were involved in um, looking for tenants at that point. What would fill this great old Union Station space? So I know there were conversations then. My conversation with Jeff Curdy continued beyond this point, actually took place over two days, and I have lots more to share with you from author, writer, producer, director, Imagineer, and of course, longtime Disney fan Jeff Curdy. Please tune in to next week's show for the second part of my conversation with Jeff. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in. Thanks also to my guest, Jeff Curdy. Please come by next week and catch the second half of my interview with Jeff. Yes, there's a lot to cover still, including his new book on the Disney dream and his work at the Walt Disney Family Museum and lots more. To meet Jeff, he and I actually will both be up at the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet in Linwood, Washington on Saturday, June 25th. There'll be other speakers, a Disney merchandise show and sale, games, contests, pin trading, a charity auction, great way to meet other Disney fans, 
Hear from some Disney legends like Jack Lindquist and Jeff Curdy and lots more. For more information or to buy tickets, you can visit pnwmousemeat.com or simply go to disneymeat.com. There you'll find information about lots of upcoming Disney fan and official events, including the WDW Radio Meets of the Month. Every month we get together in Walt Disney World just for casual get-togethers of WDW Radio listeners. This month we'll be meeting Saturday, May 21st over at Disney's Hollywood Studios for the opening of Star Tours 2 and Star Wars Weekends. That'll be at 11 a.m. at the Backlot Express. In June, we'll be in Japan for Japan. We'll be meeting in World Showcase, but we're already doing fundraising to raise money for the American Red Cross Relief Fund for the tragedy still going on in Japan. We'll also be at the D23 Expo out in California. We've got the 40-hour live broadcast and show the weekend of October 1st. Lots more. Again, you can find out more at DisneyMeets.com. Don't forget, too, I want you to interact with me and the show. Be part of the WDW Radio family and community. You can email me if you have a question about vacation planning or history and trivia you want me to answer. You can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. To call into the voicemail line, be heard on the air. You can call toll-free at 888-703-2171. And please come by wdwradio.com. There you'll not only find show notes for this and all past episodes, but you'll find our fun, friendly, safe discussion forums, daily blog posts, photo galleries, the WDW Radio Disney Book Club, lots more going on there. And remember, too, if you are a new listener to WDW Radio, welcome. And don't forget that all the past episodes are still available at WDWRadio.com and on iTunes. Many of the shows are evergreen and include interviews and reviews, and Wayback Machines and trivia Lots more that I think you'll enjoy. Don't forget, while you're on the site, too, visit the WDW Radio shop. There you can find signed copies of my Walt Disney World trivia books, the audio guides to Walt Disney World on CD or download. And please come by, visit celebrationspress.com. If you want to get a little bit of Disney magic delivered to your door every other month, Tim Foster and I publish, with the help of some incredible contributors, Celebrations Magazine. You can find out more, subscribe, and order back issues again over at celebrationspress.com. And if you're interested in a private, guided walking tour of Walt Disney World, looking at its details, hidden treasures, overlooked experiences, and lots more, I'm now offering private four-hour tours to families and groups who are looking for a unique way to experience the Magic Kingdom. For more information, visit LouMangelo.com. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors. As always, if you're looking to book a trip to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, on the Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney, Visit Becky and her team over at mousefantravel.com. Best prices, all available discounts, and of course, amazing personal service. If you're looking to stay near Walt Disney World, maybe looking for something that has a private pool, multiple master bedrooms, a complete kitchen and game room of your very own, check out one of the two-bedroom, up to seven-bedroom homes at allstarvacationhomes.com. While you're in Walt Disney World, be sure and head down to Bongo's Cuban Cafe for authentic Cuban cuisine, a fun, lively environment that has live music and dancing on Friday and Saturday nights, indoor and great outdoor seating, a three bars and an express window. Check out their menu. Find out more information at bongoscubancafe.com or visit them in downtown Disney in Walt Disney World. And finally, if you want to stay in the heart of Walt Disney World, one of my favorite places to stay, you can see by some of my tweets and pictures, I love staying, sleeping, and eating at the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin Blue Zoo, Il Molino, Shula's, and of course, the Heavenly Beds are just some of the great benefits. You can learn more by visiting swananddolphin.com. 
This is also a very exciting week. I'll be heading up to Walt Disney World for the Destination D scavenger hunt and Destination D event and presentations. Those begin on Thursday, May 12th and continue until Sunday, May 15th. We're going to have a very casual, informal meetup of WW Radio listeners pre-Destination D on Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. at the Earl of Sandwich in downtown Disney. If you're around, want to come by, say hi, grab something to eat, please feel free. And later that evening, I'll be broadcasting the live WDW newscast from downtown Disney. Don't forget to join us every Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for the WDW newscast. It's a live interactive news show covering Walt Disney World news where you can be part of the broadcast and discussion. Talk about the news real time in the chat room. You can come and visit it at www.newscast.com. If you can't catch the show live, it'll be posted on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Radio. I'll also post the audio-only portion in the WDW Radio iTunes feed as well. Hopefully, if you are in Walt Disney World for Destination D, I can either see you at the Earl of Sandwich or hopefully during the next couple of days' events. That is going to do it for this week's show. I want to thank you again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Don't forget that if you like the show, all I ask is that you please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening if you're on Twitter. Share a link to your favorite show on Facebook. And please come by, review the show and the free WDW Radio iPhone app over in iTunes. And of course, my friends, and I mean this, you are my friends, whether we've met or not, or hopefully get a chance to meet this week. I want to thank you for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. So until next time, Please remember to start pursuing your passion and following your dream. It is never too late to take that first step and get started. And once you do, always keep moving forward. Be inspired. Be motivated. Thank you all for tuning in again. So until next time, see ya. Hi, Lou. This is Jen Tremley from Bristol, Connecticut, calling. Just wanted to uh, say hello, and uh, I just finished listening to this week's show, show number 220 about the uh, streetmosphere uh, in Walt Disney World, and I just wanted to comment quickly uh, and let you know that I do love streetmosphere. Um, I loved it from the, the day it started at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Um, I think it's wonderful. They're very interactive. Um, they're a lot of fun. Um, and, and to be honest with you, some of them are quite hilarious um, with, with their skits and their improv. Uh, we just had a recent experience um, when we went in September where we were walking down uh, Sunset Boulevard towards the Tower of Terror, and uh, Otto Van Bonbon, and uh, I forgot the other lady's name, was out in their white carriage, and uh, they really uh, started playing it up with us. Uh, they kept yelling at us, telling us not to take pictures of them, but yet they'd pose, and, and, and we kind of you know went back and forth with that for, for several minutes, and it was, uh, it, was quite a, it was quite a fun experience. And I love Officer Peabody. Um, and, uh, I, I just, I, I love the whole package and, and I loved how you guys mentioned a lot of the other world showcase performers as well as, uh, Divine over in, uh, Animal Kingdom. I too am a huge fan of her, of hers as well. So anyway, another great show. Uh, keep up the great work, Lou, and, uh, we will talk to you soon. Take care. Yeah!